This is the Chapel of DBTS. Be sure to subscribe and listen to the Chapel messages weekly. And for more info, please go to dbts.edu. And now today's message. We invite you to take your Bibles, please, and go to John chapter 4 this morning. We'll get there uh, shortly, John chapter 4. And uh, let me as well add my word of welcome to you to the new semester and hope uh, it should be a good time of studying the word together and, and I hope it will be a, uh, academically profitable but also that uh, you'll be uh, making sure to close the gap between what you know and, and how you live uh, out the word. Uh, I just want to put, a, put it on the radar, it's a few weeks away, we, uh, we sent out the stuff about uh, E3 conference, what I would really encourage you to do is, uh, is uh, maybe be recruiters for us. Uh, you know folks, uh, maybe pastors from churches where you were, invite them. Uh, it really should be a good time together uh, on those two days, and uh, you can help us out a lot. Um, I mean, you're half our advertising budget, so if you could, uh, if you could push it, that'd be great. We'd love to get the word out for that conference, and, and particularly... Uh, one aspect of that would be prospective students. Uh, if you have uh, friends from college, those of you that didn't finish up that long ago, um, uh, we, we give them a free ride to it. So if, if uh, they you, know, you get the word to them, uh, get them in, it could be a, a great way for them to be exposed to the seminary. All right, we're starting a new chapel. Uh, I'm, I've been trying over the last few years to do a, something of a series. This year I've decided to do it on worship and work our way through uh, that concept because it's clearly a, a crucial part of uh, pastoral leadership. Uh, the worship that's happening in the church uh, needs to be something that's shepherded. And, and my experience is uh, the nature of of this issue is that you need to you need to carefully and continually bring scripture to bear on it, so that folks are are thinking about the 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 way they ought to at least uh, setting up I think biblical parameters for their thinking because even people who agree on the biblical principles are probably going to always wrestle with how you apply them and and work through it. But if you don't start with a principled base, then you're going to have all kinds of problems because. It's the proverbial uh, judges, everyone does that which is right in his own eyes, and, and that doesn't last very long. So I want to say three points of, of just like general introduction before we look at the text in John chapter 4. When I talk about, when I encourage us to think about worship, three things that I think, uh, you know, I'll use a big word for seminary, prolegomena, right? we got to sort of pre wrestle with it, right? I think we need to be recognizing the responsibility to pursue a biblical definition of worship, not one formed chiefly on tradition or experience. And most people agree with me on that, right? I mean, that's, but the fact is, uh, all of us actually come to this subject with some preconceptions based on our traditions and our experience, right? The way we've done things, uh, we come to the table, so to speak, especially when we start to talk about the gap between the principle and the application to some degree, if we establish that, that, that it can be easy for folks to look at the same text, talk about that text in a way 
that, that sounds exactly like they agree on it, and then they step over to application and they go, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute. Because, because they're actually carrying assumptions into this that, uh, that then start to show up in the application side. And, and some of those traditions are ecclesiastical. That is the way we've always done church. Some, I think, are part of our culture, the way we do life in our society, right? Uh, I mean, a simple one of that, if you, go, if you start to travel the globe, right? Um, seating arrangements. You go, you go to India, men on one side, women on the other, right? First time I was in East Africa, it was actually men in the front and women in the back. You come to America, if you segregate like that, people are looking at you like, what, what are you doing? In fact, some people would preach so hard about families being together in worship that they think the people in India and Africa are sinning, right? Because obviously you've got to worship together as a family. You know, so, so the reality of it is that's framed, that's all framed by our culture because I have never been able to find a seating pattern in the Bible yet. But some people would anchor on it in such a way that they're convinced it's, it's biblical, right? And, and, and the reality of it is, is that sometimes we don't recognize how much that shapes what we're thinking. Right? We, we come with preconceived ideas based on our our experiences. And so I think we have to wrestle with that, or we have to think through that. I mean, I remember, <laughs> I think we've broken it by now, but um, probably not completely. Um, there's all kinds of things over almost 30 years, but I, um, I think there's a real habit in American church worship to, to think of performances right, solos, special numbers, choirs, as being the key to good worship, right, and I can remember at times I'd have folks say to me things like, um, you know, like if we happen to have a couple of different things going on on Sunday, boy, that was so great, that's what, you know, that's what worship's really like, and I'd be sitting there thinking, well, actually, no, (laughs) I'm not certain they had a choir at Ephesus, right, or they had someone playing offertory, or they had a solo before the message, right? But, but we get used to that stuff. And so we think that's what a good worship service is, right? Now, may or may not be, but, but our def- definition of good there is probably not being framed by Scripture at that point, right? And, and so we have to walk our way through it. And I, now, don't hear me saying the tradition is bad, because I don't think that's the case. I think traditionalism <laughs> can be, but I think I think uh, we should have a bent to trying uh, to recognize that the people who went before us probably put some thought into what they did, and that's why it's a tradition for us. So before we abandon it, we should actually understand it and try to evaluate it, right, rather than just saying new is better. Uh, but our authority is not in the traditions that have been established. It's in actually the principles that hopefully were the basis for those things, and, and we might have to think through it. And certainly, worship is an experience, so, so I don't want to discount that entirely. But we have to work from here outward. Okay, and that, that's... Uh, 
Easy to affirm, harder to do. Right, but we need to start that way and move out. Second, I think, and this is uh, sometimes, um, uh, I think neglected, right? And that is, we must pursue a dispos dispositionally appropriate definition of worship, not one that fails to recognize the crossover from Israel to the church. I mean, I, I think a lot of times, and, and I, I, you know, this is the problem you use terms like this, right? I, I would think I'm fairly conservative about worship. Now, everybody to the right of me doesn't think that. Everybody to the left of me is absolutely convinced of that, right? I mean, so that's the problem is, you know, one man's conservatism is another man's liberalism at times in this subject, right? But here's the, the, the part of concern to me, often with the, uh, what I would say is the more conservative kind of approach, but it shows up all over the place, is, is that they, they really tend at times to anchor a lot of what they say in the Old Testament and, and actually take Old Testament truth about worship and cross it over to the New Testament sometimes without, I think, appropriately wrestling with the distinctions that have happened. Right? They're, they're not necessarily taking into consideration that we don't have the binding rule of life that Israel had about these issues. Right? Our rule of life for believers is not the Mosaic Law and the way it instituted worship. And, and I would never want to discount what the Old Testament provides to us as valuable information because it is profitable, right, for teaching, for proof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And so we shouldn't, we shouldn't miss that. But the New Testament church enjoys the richness of Christ's finished sacrifice and present intercession in a way that Old Testament worship could not accommodate. The priesthood of believers replaces the priest of the Old Testament. The Spirit's presence has superseded his work in the previous dispensation. The complexity of Old Testament worship has been replaced by the simplicity of New Testament worship. I mean, there's, there's just a lot of there. The service of the temple with all of its pageantry and ritual has been replaced by the living body of Christ with its organic nature and interaction. Uh, and I would think people who are the, the children of the Reformation would be really sensitive to this because most of Romish worship is precisely because it parks in the Old Testament. All they've done is come up with a New Testament equivalent of the Old Testament sacrificial system, priesthood, all the stuff that's there to regulate it. And, and what we have to do is recognize that we actually, we, we've had a pivotal change in the very nature of God's people and His work and what, what worship is. And, and practically, that's why you don't. I mean, I think people overplay this, right? I think, uh, for instance, Peterson does in his book, Engaging with God, I think he overplays it. But, but you find very little worship language in the New Testament. Right? The primary gathering of God's people, the word that's used is edification. Right? It, it focuses on 
exercise of gifts and, and speaking of truth to one another. There's very little of like corporate assembly called worship like we see in the Old Testament. Now, I said very little, not at all, <laughs> right? But, but you have to recognize there is a significant, even in the language of the way in which uh, God's presence uh, is, is among his people. Uh, and, and so I think we have to wrestle through that because a lot of times it seems like that is ignored and we as, uh, I'm going to speak at least for those of us uh, who are officially and formally here, hopefully all of you as well, we as dispensationalists, all right, should not minimize. But sometimes, uh, sometimes can be, uh, and, and there's lots of places like you can get off the exit ramp of what I'm saying, so don't try not to go off on the exit ramp. Just try and stick with me as much as I can here. But here's the thing that we certainly do. We, we, we know there is a seriousness, a sobriety, a reverence, uh, you know, uh, 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 a, a certain kind of otherness to the worship of God back here, and we want that, and we ought to want that, right? But we shouldn't pursue it by trying to recreate mosaic worship, right? Because Hebrews does tell us that we serve God with reverence and fear, right? We can have it in the New Testament context, without actually accomplishing it by Old Testament rituals or framing of worship in that regard, right? The third is I think we must pursue a definition of worship that recognizes the difference between personal and congregational worship, and I'm not going to spend as much time on it, but I think what we do is, and, and this is, again, sort of what happens with it, right? I mean, I think all of us hopefully would embrace a doxological purpose for life, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And so it can be easy to say, that's worship. So worship isn't when we get together as a church, worship's all of life, right? So worship is just whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. And while that is true, it should not be used to leverage against the gathering of God's people to glorify him as the assembly of Christ redeemed, right? And that, that sometimes happens in our day, right? Again, it's, it's because God's not in a temple, right? So we don't have to go to the temple and worship. I can get up and I can go sit by the lake this Sunday morning, read my Bible and sing some songs to Jesus, and I, had, I just had a worship service. Right, Because it all, and potentially in our culture, can become so individualistic and privatized that we leverage the responsibility to glorify God in all things and calling that worship, we leverage that against our responsibility together as his people to worship him. Right, That we are to not forsake the assembling of that, and that there's loads of what God is wanting to do in our lives that can't be done apart from other believers. Right? So, so we don't want to, I don't think we want to mash the two together in a way that, that actually starts to obliterate one of them. Because if all of life is worship, then it can sort of wipe out worship over here. Right? And, and, 
And what I'd be saying is there is something different about you gathering on the Lord's Day with God's people according to His Word to worship Him that's different than what you do on Monday morning by the side of the lake casting your, you know, your uh, fishing pole so you can catch a fish and enjoy the glory of God. Right? There's something substantively different that cannot be lost. Right? So what we really should be after is to divine worship biblically and from the perspective of the New Testament and specifically with its emphasis on the local assembly. And that's all three of those, like, down to 30 seconds, and I probably should have just done the 30-second one, right? All right, so we're, we're doing it biblically with the New Testament emphasis, and that has a very clear focus in the local assembly. All right, but what we need to do this morning is take a few moments and look at why that hinge is so important, and it's found, I think, in the words of Jesus here in John chapter 4. John chapter 4. Uh, let's start really in, uh, in verse 19, where the Samaritan woman says to Jesus, The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Very uh, pivotal, important text, I think, uh, should uh, really should frame much of how we think in the transition between Old Testament worship and New Testament worship, because that's exactly what Jesus is introducing when he says in verse 23, an hour is coming and now is. And he clearly has set aside the worship that had been happening previously, because it's now not going to be in this mountain or in Jerusalem. So, three truths that I just want to draw out, uh, hopefully draw out three truths. All right, first is we must worship God through Jesus Christ. He says in verse 23, an hour is coming and now is. And I think Jesus is pointing to uh, the, the transition that's going to happen in connection with the, the cluster events of his crucifixion, burial and resurrection and exaltation because John uses that phrase hour to capture that his impending glorification right he talks about his hour not being here yet his hour is coming the time is coming and so so it really is that he's saying his hour will change the way we worship right when when what happens to Jesus happens. It will change the way we worship. Right? You, you no longer will worship through the temple via the sacrificial system. Right? There will be a fundamental change associated with Christ and his cross work so that, so that worship is through the, of the true and living God is only through Jesus Christ. And 
And we rejoice in that, right? Because we know that it's the person and work of Jesus Christ that make genuine worship possible. Right? We can only come to God through Him. Chapter 14 and verse 6. Uh, Paul says in Ephesians 2 that we have access to the Father through Him by the Spirit. And so that's, in fact, in the context of having opened it up to the Gentiles. Right? God's making one new man so that both have access to the Father through Him by the Spirit. That's, that's a part of what Jesus is referring to here. And so we can come to God because of what Jesus Christ will accomplish in his crucifixion. And we can come to him, like Hebrews says, uh, with, with a, a conscience that's been changed by virtue of it. Right? The sacrificial system had a continual reminder of sin in it. But with Christ and his finished work, we now can come to God and, and, and come to him with a level of assurance that I think uh, supersedes theirs. I think it also means, in the way what Jesus is saying here in hours coming now is, that the person and work of Jesus Christ initiate a worship that is not confined to holy places. I look at verse 21. He says, An hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Right? And so the, the debate that the Samaritan woman wants to do is Mount Gerizim or or the temple in Jerusalem, and Jesus says, there's an hour coming when it won't be about either of those. Right? So, so Christ and his finished work is going to be the foundation for the global spread of the gospel and the formation of believers into assemblies wherever that is. And, and God has granted us access to the Father through Christ by the Spirit without regard to some holy place that we have to go find. We don't have to go back to Jerusalem and worship, or up to Bethel and worship. Right? We can worship where we have come to know Christ and, and a, an assembly of believers has gathered because of what Christ has done. And so we can worship there. Uh, Homer Kent uh, says this, He showed that worship is the essential thing, the place is secondary and of temporary significance. The reason is that God himself is spirit, and hence true worship is an act of spirit. Dependence on ritual or physical environment to produce genuine worship of God is erroneous. It was a matter of recognizing God's truth and worshiping God with our spirit. So, so we're no longer limited to that. And so there's a... a, a I, mean, I think an emerging global reality of the mission of Christ because of his work. And I think uh, the person and work of Christ initiate worship that is not a matter of external form. And we'll come back to this, right? Because I don't think you can actually technically eliminate forms and things like that. But, but there is... Um, there was such an attachment in the Old Testament to those pictures and shadows of what was to come. That true worship was, was tied to them, right? You couldn't, you, you, you couldn't worship God apart from the things that were the picture of the substance to come, right? But Christ is the substance. And, and so now we don't have to go 
and offer a sacrifice or burn the incense or approach God through the, the places and locations that marked off his distance from us, holy of holies, holy place, temple court, all of those things were given by God graciously to communicate really important truth. But they were the picture of the substance. Right? And, and now, the fulfillment of them in Christ is, is that we're, we don't have this, uh, this structural lesson in a temple. This process of of demonstrating sin removal, right? Putting your hand on the sacrifice, having it killed and 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 uh, the sacrifice given in a certain way and and food offered then in connection to of that sacrifice to to indicate the fellowship that's provided and and animals released to show sin gone. All of those very tangible things were intended to communicate truths which are fulfilled. And, and Jesus is saying that, that the hour is coming when there's going to be this radical change. Right? And, and, and I'm hitting it a little hard because not, I don't know what I'd say is that I think I can say this because obviously I'm going to say I don't know. So it means there might be somebody out there that I don't know, right? Uh, I don't know any, I mean, it, biblically based, theologically informed people who are really pushing hard for the reinstitution of these things. But there is a movement, what I would say, among the, the really squishy evangelical stuff to, to start to attribute all these physical actions and, and stuff. So, so they want to have candles burning. They want to have all this stuff because they want to involve all the senses in worship. And, and they want to go back to a lot of this stuff. And almost every time they do, they get to Matthew and they turn left. Because they can't find it in the New Testament. Right? It's just not there. So what they want to do is resurrect and pull back the worship of Israel. And, and it's, it's wrong. <laughs> right? I, mean, it's, it, I think it's actually sinful based on the book of Hebrews. And, and we, can't, we can't miss the significant change that Jesus introduces here and, and talks about it in that way. Because of Christ, we don't go back to the things that were. Right? We're, we're not to do that. Right, then notice in verse 23 at the end, he says, uh, or 23 he says, we must worship the Father in spirit and truth. And, and I'm going to try to, I don't think I'm going to get through all these, so that's why it's a good series, right? I can just keep coming back. Uh, second, we must worship God spiritually in spirit. Now, I'm taking that as human spirit versus Holy Spirit, right? I think, I think uh, Nasby's correct here by not capitalizing the spirit in verse 23. The reason I take it that is because the debate uh, that, that preceded this instruction was about the location of worship. Right? Should we worship in Gerizim or in Jerusalem? And Jesus is not talking about 
worshiping the Holy Spirit. He's saying, no, worship is not going to be place. It's going to be spirit. Right? And I think that's also confirmed by its parallel with truth. Uh, there's only one preposition in there, in spirit and truth. So to have the spirit be the Holy Spirit and truth be just truth, I don't think works real well. Uh, in terms of, of understanding it. Now, don't, uh, don't overreact to my point. Right? Your spirit cannot worship unless the Holy Spirit has done a work there. Right? But this is not saying the Holy Spirit's out there and you need to get in Him and worship. Right? Get in the Spirit. Right? It's talking about our spirits worshiping God. We must worship Him in spirit. And I think that's consistent with what John has said up to this point, recorded of Jesus up to this point. Look at, go back in chapter 3, because the first thing I think we'd have to say about it is that, that the, it must be an alive spirit. <laughs> right? Look at chapter, chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Right? So you're chapter 3. If you're not born of the Spirit, you don't have the capability to worship in spirit and in truth. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So you just step over to chapter 4, you're reading it. He says, worship in spirit. He's going to be saying, so you, you must be made alive in order to truly worship. There must be a work of God that has regenerated your spirit so that you can worship him truly. And I, and I, think, that's, um, I think that's an essential part of it. And it's, I don't have I'm out of time to cover the stuff that's in the main point, let alone your rabbit trails. But I think at least I'll put this tiny one out there. We should think about that when we design our worship services primarily for lost people. <laughs> right? They can't worship. You can't worship in spirit if you're dead in your trespasses and sins. And in fact, Proverbs says a couple of times that such worship is actually an abomination. So, so it's, a, it's a fundamentally misguided thing to try and get lost people to worship as a means of reaching them when they can't worship. Certainly, lost people come into the worship. 1 Corinthians 14 talks about that. But it is not it's intended to be uh, a, 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 an effort to get them worshiping God so they somehow draw closer to him. Go over to chapter 11, because there's, I think it's more than just that, that it's an alive spirit versus a dead spirit. And I take this from the way spirit is used here uh, in, in chapter 11. You know the context, I'm sure, Lazarus' death and, and then uh, interaction about it. Look at verse 33. It says, when Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. Right? So he had in his inner person the spirit, right? The, the sort of the seed of the, the immaterial part. He was deeply moved or was stirred there. Right? Then look at down to verse 38. 
because there's a parallel. So Jesus, again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. All right, now here's the key to, to get my point on it is, moved in spirit and moved within are, are parallel, right? And we know that because he says, again, being deeply moved. So what happened in 33, he was moved in his spirit, and then verse 38 describes it as being moved within. All right now, again, we're in John's gospel, and I think we'd have to be thinking, so when Jesus says you must worship in spirit, he's talking about something within us that has been made alive by the Holy Spirit and could be described as being moved, stirred. All right? So, so when we're talking about the kind of worship that Jesus is talking about, we're talking about an alive and perhaps we could say fervent spirit, to use Paul's word in Romans, and, and, and versus a dead and what I would say is a cold spirit, potentially. right? Someone unstirred by the truth. Right? And I think Piper is good on this from desiring God. Worshiping in spirit is the opposite of worshiping in merely external ways. It is the opposite of empty formalism and traditionalism. Worshiping in truth is the opposite of worship based on an inadequate view of God. All right, so, so he's talking about it in that way. Now, again, I, I gladly confess that there's an element of subjectivity to it. Right? And, and if you can't handle subjectivity, you're going to have a hard time with life. Right? One person's, one person's, uh, go, I mean, just, you know, take the, the, the John 11 passage, right? One person's being deeply moved within or deeply moved in his spirit, and another person's being deeply moved in his spirit. Uh, from the outside, they may look radically different, <laughs> so much so that this person doesn't think the other person is. Right, because this person, it, you can just see it all over them that they're stirred about something, but the other person's a little more placid, and they're stirred inside. They're just not externally expressing it the same way, right? And the problem is, is that we don't leave room for the differences in our personalities uh, enough. So that this person thinks that person's all emotionalism and this person thinks that person's all dead. Right? And it sort of misses the point because it's within. Right? It is, in fact, that they are stirred within with regard to what's at stake. Response to the circumstances in John 11. I think Jesus is saying your, your worship of the Father. Right, because if you're not engaged, if it does not have any effect on your spirit, then I don't think it's what Jesus was after. Right, because he says this is the kind of worship that he seeks. Right, and and so there should be some type of response from our spirit to. Uh, worshiping the true and living God through Jesus Christ. Just because it would leave it like hanging out there. Let me just look at the uh, back in chapter 4 
worship in spirit and in truth. And I'll probably uh, unpack this more, Lord willing, next time. But I think we must worship God truly. We must worship Him truly. I don't think it's a separate characteristic of worship in the sense, uh, in this sense, that it's joined to in spirit. I think it is probably understood best in contrast to Jesus' statement about Samaritan worship in verse 22. You worship what you do not know. (laughs) Right? So when Jesus says you need to worship in truth, that's in contrast to you worship what you do not know. Right? Your, Your worship is not according to truth. And, and, and so it is something that has to do with the, kind, the, 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 the worship being in accordance with truth. We worship God truly. And I'll just close with a frame quote. It often surprises people to learn that God is not always pleased when people worship Him. We might be inclined to think that God should be thankful for any attention we give Him out of our busy schedules. But worship is not about God's thanking us. It is about our thanking Him. And God is not pleased with just anything we choose to do in His presence. The mighty Lord of heaven and earth demands our worship. Indeed, all of life be governed by His word. Right? So, so we need to realize that, that though we have been, in a sense, freed from... Some of the uh, cumbersome, probably not the right way to say it, but regulation of worship in the Old Testament. I mean, very detailed regulation of it. Who, when, where, how. I mean, down to great detail. We stepped in the New Testament and there is much more freedom but not freedom away from God's Word. Not so that we can just figure out what's pleasing to us and then worship Him. It actually is we're to try to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. And our worship must be through Christ, done spiritually and truly. And Lord, we'll pick it up there next time. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you have opened the way for us into your presence through our great Savior, Jesus Christ, that we can come with confidence to your throne, that we can gather as your people under the promises that you've given to to dwell among us and be our Father. And so help us to live that out. Help us to have a heart toward the assembly of of your people for worship that truly treasures it and, and, and views it as uh, a wonderful gift of your grace to us. And thank you that all of that is found in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the DBTS Chapel Hour. DBTS is a ministry of Inner City Baptist Church. To find out more about Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary, please go to dbts.edu.